Well, welcome to another episode of the Door of Hope Leadership Podcast. This is Cameron Hager, and I am here once more with my friend, my buddy, my coworker, all-around great guy, Tom McGregor. Hey, Tom. Hey, Cameron. How are you doing today? I'm doing fantastic. I'm so glad to hear that. Yeah. That's great news. How are you doing today? Um, well, well. Great. Well, okay, enough with uh, the goofiness. It's time, well, that probably won't be the end of the goofiness, but it's time to talk about why we're here, which is another uh, conversation around an important subject that we believe leaders at Door of Hope uh, should be thinking about and talking about and uh, digging into a bit. The subject of the day is knowing and loving the city. Uh, This is material that Tom put together originally for our leader training uh, back in January, and we thought it'd be a good one to kind of revisit and and get in the hands of people who weren't there. Um, So I guess, first of all, um, it's probably worth mentioning that of the four pillars of Door of Hope, uh, kind of the four guiding values that that lie at kind of the center of our church, the city is one of them. Um, Tom, talk us through a bit. What What is the city pillar of Door of Hope? Uh, let's just answer that first of all. Uh, I think it's a, a practical outworking of the other three pillars. Uh, and we often talk about how there's not really four distinct pillars, but uh, there's a, a single foundation comprised of four interrelated Parts And so the city is the natural outworking of our focus around Jesus and his gospel. Uh, it practiced and experienced in the context of community and with this kind of uh, philosophical um, bent towards simplicity, keeping the main thing the main thing. And, and since uh, community requires proximity, and um, and we desire to see more and more people know, love, and follow Jesus together in that community. Uh, we we think that this requires a particular place in time, and uh, so we've chosen the boundaries of Portland proper as as that that place that we practice our love for Jesus and our relationship with Him together. So then true or false, the city pillar means that at Door of Hope, we don't think, say, suburban areas need the gospel or rural areas need the gospel. Uh, I mean, totally true, really. (laughs) (laughs) Shenanigans! Uh, No, false, of course. Um, this, This is just a practical outworking of... Uh, who we are as a particular community doesn't mean that uh, God doesn't love the people in Gresham or in Wilsonville or in Vancouver. Uh, it just means that we as a particular expression of the, the church universal meet in Portland, live in Portland, serve in Portland, and do life in Portland together and with Jesus. Hmm. One of the first points that you made when you when you uh, kind of led a discussion through this initially was was the idea that that God does love cities, um, and I, I think that's true. But un- unpack that a bit for us biblically. Why? Uh, wh- what does the Bible have to say about God's relationship to the city? 
Yeah, I think it, yeah, it kind of depends on the context you grew up in, whether you grew up in a conservative family, rural, suburban, or otherwise, or if you grew up in a family that uh, was a little more urban or left-leaning in your worldview, uh, how much it, yeah, that, that experience growing up uh, kind of determines how much convincing you need that, that God loves cities and um, I think there there are some mistakes that are really tempting, uh, even even for us who live in the city, and that's to see the city as a center of pleasure and fun and novelty and beauty, or to see it as a center of depravity and everything that's you know, wrong with humanity. And um, the reality is, is that uh, that cities are part of God's plan for redemption, and it's where we're going to end up. Uh, if you look at Revelation twenty one, the uh, the future of humanity and the new creation is depicted as a city, and um, until we get to enjoy that with Jesus as our our reigning King, um, we experience city as a mixture. Of, of the best that humanity is capable of and, and the worst, most, most probably. Um, it, it's a mixture of, of all of the capacity of, of the human. And so um, for me, I think like some of the most convincing and beautiful depictions of God's love for the city um, fall in, in the prophets. Uh, and I think of Jonah 4, where um, Jonah is, you know, he's a xenophobe and a racist, and he doesn't want anything to do with the city that God is determined to bring love and, and blessing to through his word. And he has gone out of his way to send jo- Jonah to, to the enemy of of Israel, and they're not like nice people who just don't know the truth and happen to live in this great city. It's like um, an extremely brutal, yeah, pagan like, kingdom. Yeah, think of uh, the worst things you can think of depicted in your favorite period piece movie of like the brutality that humans are capable of, and this is Nineveh, and they're like, you know, what they do for fun. Um, and so in Jonah 4, 9 through 11, we see God's heart for the city, um, even, even though his chosen people reject the people that, that God is really determined to love and to bless. Um, or, or look at, uh, the oppressor of Israel in Jeremiah 29, where they're all like, you know, Israel's kind of bummed out that they've been taken into exile for their bad behavior and rejection of their true king. They're sitting outside of the city and, and God is determined. Uh, I mean, you see it way back in his promise to Abraham. He's determined to bring blessing to the entire world, not just his chosen people, um, but through his people, he'll bring bring blessing to the nations. And so he says, go in and seek the welfare of the city. Um, and it's not just like good advice because, you know, if things go well for them, like things will go well for you. But it, it's a depiction of God's heart 
for people. And um, I, I forget, I don't know, maybe you know the the quote or the guy responsible for the quote, but, uh, you know, it's a famous dialogue between an urbanite and a rural guy, um, probably in the Romantic period, if, if memory serves. But one guy is like, God loves the country better. Um, you know, he made all the beauty of creation, you know, Jesus retires to lonely places to pray. And so, of course, God actually likes rural areas better. And this other guy says, oh, nonsense. Um, yeah, the country has more plants than people, and and uh, the city has more people than plants. And since God loves people, he loves the city more. Um, it's not biblical, but it's a pretty good mathematical equation, I think. <laughs> I don't know. Do you know who the guy I, is? I don't remember, but I have heard it. Yeah. You know that that Jeremiah um, twenty nine story. Also, I, I think it's Tim Keller who kind of repopularized certain aspects of that story. Um, some great teaching, but he really made a big deal of the fact that that you know the two easy options for the Israelites in, in Babylonian captivity would have been a first of all just to assimilate. Mm-hmm. Um, option A, just just fold into the Babylonian culture, lose their religious identity, lose their own cultural identity, lose their ethnic identity, whatever it may be, lose who they are um, and just blend in and be do as the Babylonians do. The other easier option would have been to to avoid, to stay away, uh, to neglect, uh, to, to separate outright, um, and to have nothing to do with the, the, the evil Babylonian culture, to have nothing to do with those people. Um, but that what God is calling them to do is actually the middle way, which is the hardest, but I think we could probably all say is the more beautiful way, which is to actually go in and cultivate work for the city's good, even though they don't, uh, they don't worship Yahweh, um, to be a, be a positive witness and a, and a force for good and a declarative voice of the truth in, in the midst of the people. Um, and I, I don't know, that's always just stuck with me that, Mm -hmm. that God's desire for his people to relate to his city looks like that rather than some of these, uh, things that might feel more natural or maybe some cases that we maybe even have been taught about how we're to relate to environments like this. Mm -hmm. Um, yeah, the, the temptation to assimilate or isolate is really strong. I think there's a, a third temptation that we have, which is um, to to assimilate while retaining our um, our 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 name to assimilate and still claim the name of Jesus, uh, mm. and in doing so, we misrepresent him. Uh, mm. as someone who is really no different than the culture. Uh, we inter- reinterpret the Bible to fit our cultural mm. values and lenses. Um, and, and That's so the, a great point. The question, I think, for, for us, um, and maybe the question for you is, how, how do you faithfully represent Jesus in a way that's not only... Uh, culturally understandable, but significant and actually good news. Yeah. One one thing that came to mind for me was uh, just Jesus's model of incarnational ministry. I mean, I mean the very in, that that can be kind of a buzzy word, and sometimes it can be taken in a weird way. But the very incarnation is Jesus, the second person of the Trinity, very God Himself not standing distantly away and telling us, you know, 
here you go, here's the way, but actually taking on flesh, coming and being, even being born in a, a, a typical human birth, raising up uh, through childhood into adulthood, like, like just identifying with us in every respect. Um, and yet, uh, remaining fully aware of who he is fully committed to the mission that his father has given him, um, and being utterly unwilling to compromise in the slightest yet keeping absolutely no, you know, he's constantly accused of identity of, of being too close to the wrong people of, of being on the wrong side of the tracks or whatever. He's somehow able to strike that balance where he, he, he has this reputation, but in actuality, he's, he's remaining distinctly who he is and faithful um, to his purpose and mission, um, yet, yet doing such with a proximity that makes all the religious elite uncomfortable. And that's, not a help, that's more of an observation. There you go. That's what Jesus did. I don't know that that necessarily gets me to, here's how I do it practically, but I think that example is just well worth considering. And yeah, that, so that raises, that gets us to the second, you know, kind of main heading of, uh, of, of your outline, Tom, which is if God loves cities and, and we claim he does, if he wants us to love cities and we claim that he does, um, you, you first have to have to know the, the city, you have to be close enough to it, to understand it, to love it. Is, is that right? Oh yeah, absolutely. I mean, think about your spouse or your family or your best friend or you know whatever it is that you love with more than the "I like pizza" kind of love. <laughs> um, Although that can be a pretty deep love. It is. For a pizza. De- I've had pizza uh, <laughs> twice in the last two days, and only wish for more. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So of course, you know, proximity. Um, relational knowledge is required for real true love. Here's the example. You've got Laodicea and Revelation uh, 2 and 3, or the the letters to the seven churches in Revelation 2 and 3, and a specific uh, example of the church at Laodicea there on the paper. But um, let's, let's go back to incarnation and just think for a second. If a God you couldn't see wrote a book to you trying to convince you of his love, but you were not convinced. You were convinced he loved you, but you weren't convinced that he understood you. Um, how convincing would that love actually be? In, in other words, if if the Bible ends at, um, at the Old Testament and, and there is no person of Jesus who's who's come to be not only with us, but to be one of us and who can relate to us in every way because he has been tempted in every way that we have. He's experienced this world in every way that we have. Um, I, I don't know. I guess I just don't know if that love would be as compelling as it is when I look to Jesus and mm. see that he actually knows me because he's been like me. Mm. And so I don't think your neighbors are really going to believe that you love them if if they don't believe that you're like them. Mm. Um, not in like practices, but in experience. 
And, and I don't think your love is going to be very coherent in the way that you express it or articulate it. If you don't understand what drives them, what motivates them, what, um, what overwhelms them with beauty. Uh, you know, if, if we don't understand the motives of the people that we want to, to love, um, I just, I don't know if any, if our love can be much more than kind of empty borderless sentiment. Hmm. So taking all this from the general and a bit abstract to our particular city of here in Portland, I mean, you, you did it. I mean, you've lived here most of your life. Mm-hmm. You live here currently. You are around. So that's one aspect of it. But then you've also done a little bit of, you know, by virtue of your role at the church, you've kind of got a closer finger on the pulse of some things socially that are going on in our city. And then even for this, you did a bit of additional prep work. So taking all that together, give us, paint us a little bit of a, of a picture of Portland. Like what, what are the, in, in your view, the healthy and good things about our city? Um, some of them, and then what are some maybe crises or challenges or, um, maybe uglier things that, that are in our midst? Yeah, so uh, for anybody that's listening to this and knows me, even in brief, uh, they know that I am not a numbers person per se, Um, but I do think that the numbers can help us a little bit. So I'm going to spit out some stats as we're going through this, Um, but I, I would give a couple, well, one caveat, as soon as statistics are collected and published, they're already out of date. And so mm-hmm. the numbers I'm giving you come from you know, the, the last census and then our best guest estimates or best guest uh, estimates since then. And then they're also coming from things like the, um, the HUD point in time homelessness count, uh, which is about as reliable as we're going to get. But at the same time, it, it really only calculates a population of people on a few nights every couple of years. Mm. And, and and so these numbers are about as accurate as I can get, but they're out of date. And within you know the next three months, I believe uh, our next HUD report is going to be coming out. And so what I would encourage you to do is to go do your research yourself, uh, especially if you like numbers. That's it's a great exercise. Um, you're going to gather way more information if you're predisposed to enjoying numbers than just listening to these. But with that said, uh, let's look at some of the numbers. Uh, Portland is roughly 133 square miles of land. And we have, at last count, uh, 640,000 people, roughly, uh, that populate Portland proper. And that's about 4,300 people per square mile. And um, if you if you live in Portland and have for any length of time, it feels like Portland is getting denser. But if you look at a place like Manhattan... And and compare our forty three hundred people per square mile to um, to Manhattan. You're looking at about twenty eight thousand people per square mile as to 
as opposed to our 4,300. Mm. So the density of Oregon it, or of Portland proper is is not quite as dense as some of our more populated cities. And this contributes to a, uh, a quality of life uh, that is attracting more and more people and therefore more and more density. Uh, and it's contributing to a little bit of a housing crisis. Uh, the, the current median income for a household is about $67,000. Um, and that will buy you a $250,000 home. And the median cost for a home or a condo in Portland proper is just under $400,000. And so you can see where the problem is. You know, that's a, a deficit of $150,000 you have to come up with. Wow. Uh, that, that's a huge issue. Um, and this is going to become more of a problem as more people move into the city. Uh, we're just we're behind on vacant housing units. There, at last count, were about twelve thousand vacant units available for incoming people, um, and only eight hundred permits were pulled for new construction uh, in the last count. And this is pushing people further and further out. Uh, it's also affecting our our homeless population, um, and, and the way that uh, point in time counts by uh, HUD work is that they go out a few nights every two years to count people who are in shelters, living on the streets, and living in vehicles that are not suitable for. Uh, for dwelling. Um, they don't count vehicles that have been modified to be suitable for dwelling. And so a lot of the RVs that you see around town and even some of the, the vehicles, if there's been any sort of modification, people living in, in those environments are not counted as um, houseless or homeless. Uh, there's a lot of uh, controversy right now around that that word, homeless. And some people are for it. Some people would prefer to change it. We're going to use it only because it's helpful uh, in the midst of a change in vocabulary. And so what we mean by, by homeless is uh, anyone living in conditions that are not suitable for living uh, and, and out of a, a dwelling unit um, that, that they own and or rent. Um, and so this includes people that are couch surfing on families' couches uh, or friends. Um, and so in this point of time uh, count uh, that was done in 2015, um, Portland had about 4,200 people sleeping on the streets in a shelter or in temporary housing. But another 12,000 were doubled up in overcrowded or unsafe living conditions, uh, couch surfing, etc., that sort of thing. And, and of those people that are, are homeless, um, about 40% of the population uh, are people of color. And, um, and that's just crazy because... Portland is overwhelmingly Caucasian. Uh, we're 70% Caucasian, 30% people of color, uh, including multi-ethnic backgrounds. 
And this, this kind of leads us into a question of Oregon's background. So I remember growing up in Portland in the late 80s, early 90s, and um, the white supremacist movement was super visible. I remember an Ethiopian man was murdered in the street, and he was killed by people that belonged to the Aryan Nation. Uh, I watched it on the evening news. At one point in the early 90s, I believe, uh, the KKK was considering relocating their North American headquarters to Portland because we were so friendly to this ideology. Um, And that's because Oregon was founded as a white utopia. I don't know if you're aware of our history, but we are founded as a racist state. And those structures uh, that we were founded on have still found their way into our, our laws and um, still put people at disadvantage. And so while we are uh, growing in diversity, we still have this, this past that haunts the experience of people who are from different ethnic backgrounds, whether they're refugees or, uh, you know, they were born here. They are facing an unjust system and structure. Mm. And that plays out in things like homelessness and poverty. You know, 14.7% of Portland residents live below the poverty line. And that represents 29.4% of African-Americans and thirty, you know, the the numbers go up. Thirty point five percent of our Hispanic and Latino brothers and sisters, and thirty seven point six percent of our Native and First Nation brothers and sisters live below the the poverty line. Whereas ten point five percent of the Caucasian population uh, face face poverty. Yeah, and that you know, this history is something that. You know, I'm a trans. My wife and I are transplants to Oregon. We mm-hmm. we moved from from the south about five years ago, and you know, as we were thinking about moving to Portland, considering the move, doing a bit of research, visit visited a couple of times. Um, none of that <laughs> history was on our radar in the least. Mm-hmm. Um, and then getting out here, you know, it still wasn't on our radar. I think it was probably about a year ago that someone was sharing this with me, and I just couldn't believe it. And but part of me realizes that I, I'm, I'm ignorant of it because, in some ways, I'm the beneficiary of it as mm-hmm. a white man in the city. <laughs> and so, yeah. it's something. It's extremely tragic, um, and I and I just recognize that there are plenty of folks living in the living here who haven't had that privilege of blissful unawareness of our of our state's racist history. Mm-hmm. So anyway, I just want yeah. to acknowledge that. I mean, um, in, in 1940, the African-American population in Portland was 2,000. 2,000 people. Um, wow. That was like point one or 0.006% of the population. People of Afri- African-American descent are now 5.8% of Portland's population, and that's growing. But, but some of these structures, some of this history really makes uh, diversity challenging. Mm. Uh, speaking of diversity, we have the second highest per capita percentage of LGBTQ residents. 5.4% of our population identify 
uh, in, uh, in that population. And this is second only to San Francisco. And, and as I'm talking through some of this, I hope what you're hearing is not just um, injustice, not just bad news, but what I hope you're hearing is opportunity. I hope you're hearing opportunities for justice, for, uh, for correcting the wrongs of the past. I hope you're hearing these are, these are my neighbors and people that need to come into contact with the living Jesus, and they will most likely come into contact with the living Jesus through you mm. and through me. Um, and so these numbers, again, I, I get bogged down in them just because I'm not necessarily a numbers guy. But, but I hope what you hear is, is opportunity. Mm. Some of the other things that you've even brought up with our congregation even on Sundays are things like the uh, foster care crisis that we're in the midst of with mm-hmm. the city actually calling for churches to, to partner um, in and help, help relieve this crisis. W- what are some other kind of signifiers about what things our city's known for? Yeah, I think, uh, I mean, you don't have to look far to see that we're known for just for being cool. I mean, we've got however many magazines about just about our city being published in Japan currently, which is kind of wacky. Um, but internationally, uh, <laughs> Portland is recognized as a tastemaker. You know, we've got a, an unfortunate, or fortunate, I guess, depending on your sensibilities. Uh, we have an unfortunate television show about our city, or maybe not necessarily about us, but about an idea of who we are in Portlandia. We're known for our taste. Uh, we have an incredible food scene where you can get one of the best burgers in the world for a, a, a ridiculous amount of money. I mean, just pennies uh, comparatively to other cities that you go to. We're known for fine dining, fine wine. We are known for our great music scene, art scene. We're known for a ton of strip clubs and beer and coffee and gentrification and homelessness and street kids and you know the list goes on. Such such a mix of of a beauty and brokenness mm-hmm. yeah. in, in that reputation. And it's also really important to remember that our our city, though these are all stats relevant to the whole city, it's not a monolith. And and each of us as individuals, as families, as small communities, we find ourselves in different neighborhoods in the city. And each one is going to have its own mix of beautiful things, things where people, um, whether they're believers or not, are 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 close to the heart of God, creating culture and beauty and goodness. Uh, and then horrible things, ugly things, broken things, things just irreparably marred by sin. And so uh, one of the things I loved was you kind of gave a little grid for helping us think through in our own specific neighborhoods. How do we read them? How do we understand them? So just talk to us a bit about that. What did, first of all, what do you mean by this concept of reading your neighborhood? There's some books we linked here that talk about exegeting the neighborhood. What is this idea getting at? Yeah, I think it, it goes back to the, the requirement of knowing that which you intend to love. And uh, so, so some of these questions that you're going to see on the handout come from the uh, the resources that are below, but really the heart of it came from 
um, a friendship that I have with a guy named Sean Benish who went to Dorf Hope for years. He's still in the city doing rad stuff. And, um, and, and so this has developed through uh, just his wisdom and experience in, uh, in teaching students, church planters, and members of his own congregations uh, when he's been um, involved in church leadership. Uh, in learning to read the uh, the signs of of the neighborhood and the city, and uh, so the conviction is that you have to know it to love it, and um, and the practical outworking of that is you have to know how to listen and how to to see in order to know, and so uh, and so we kind of we took some of the best questions. And boiled it down to this, to encourage you to go into your neighborhood, go into the place that you do business and the business districts that you frequent, and learn to know those particular areas of your city. Awesome. So why don't we just talk through some of these questions? Um, how about I, I'll... I'll read the question as written, and then you just give us a brief kind of, if you want to elaborate, (laughs) if you feel like you don't need to, then we can move on to the next one. Yeah, totally. uh, First, you said, uh, what value systems does the structural environment communicate, and who is this environment built for? Yeah, so um, I would just, as we're reading through these, uh, these questions, think about your neighborhood, uh, the place that you call home, uh, and I'm going to run you through mine. So I live in Concordia, and my neighborhood is built for families and primarily uh, first, first home kind of families. This environment is built for young people in their, you know, depending, you know, my house was built in 1950, and so at that point, probably in their early 20s, although now it's, you know, built for young 30s, with one to two kids, professionals, built for families by virtue of the parks around it. Um, and so just be thinking about who, who is this naturally conducive for what's the natural environment made for. Mm. So flowing out of that, the next one is how does the structural environment impact the way people live? Yeah, this is, this is a great one. Uh, and Josh, I think he, he first mentioned it after visiting my house, which is, uh, my house is a 1950s mid-century ranch. It looks like a giant garage because that's what faces the street. The porch is on the side. The backyard is where you hang out. And so uh, it's very difficult to hang out in the front in my driveway and meet neighbors. It's just not built that way. Whereas the homes across the street that were built even 15 years earlier have giant front porches. Uh, The front yard is bigger than the backyard, and they're made for people who want to know their neighbors. Mm. I, living in a mid-century house, would love to know my neighbors, and my house is not built for it, and so I have to fight against that. My neighbors, who live in houses conducive to knowing their neighbors, are not necessarily into it. And so they hang out in their small backyards uh, more often than they do in the very large front. Mm. Next one, how old are the buildings? Uh, Is this an old and maintained neighborhood? Are buildings in decline? Is it in process of being torn down? Is everything new? This this question seems to me to be getting uh, at, in some respects, like what's what's 
is, is the historical heritage of this neighborhood being preserved? Um, mm-hmm. Is is gentrification happening in a in a really substantial, noticeable way? Are people being driven out? Perhaps. What else is is this question sort of getting at? Yeah, I think this one is really about identity. Uh, do the people there have a strong sense of personal identity? And the resources to maintain and promote and celebrate that identity? Or uh, is this a place where the people who are tied to um, that particular neighborhood have been forced out uh, for whatever reason? Maybe not forced out, maybe they left. But there's no real history there tied to identity. And so the identity is being reshaped. I think you can look at division as a great example of a street neighborhood business district that has taken on a completely new identity in the last few years. But then, you know, look at, I don't know, Belmont in Southeast or look at Killingsworth in Northeast. Think about Northwest 23rd in Northwest or, or even think about uh, Multnomah Village uh, in Southwest, you know these these four different areas have very different value systems, and you can see it in the construction uh, and or rehabilitation of the neighborhood. Mm. I'm going to jump down a couple. Uh, if you're listening, you should by all means, uh, if when you get a chance, download the PDF we're putting out that has this in more detail. And again, list of additional resources. One, some of them have even more questions to to spur your thinking. But in the interest of time, we'll keep clipping along and jump down a little bit. I thought this was interesting. You put down what brought people here in the first place. And you made the note that this requires conversation with homeowners, <laughs> businesses, renters. Um, what are the cultural affinities, shared values, political affinity? Kind of what's, yeah, what, what, what are the shared values of the neighborhood? Yeah, I mean, because you live in this neighborhood, you're not going to be the door-to-door salesman that's taking a poll of the neighborhood. Uh, These questions, when they're asked of your neighbors, happen in the context of relationship. And so I'm certainly not advocating for you to go down the block and say, why'd you move here? But what, what I think this is getting at is uh, is the the value system. Um, did people move to your particular neighborhood to get out of the city even though they're still in the city? You know, some of the outlying neighborhoods that are further out uh, on the west and the east side, uh, North Portland, even people are moving further out in order to maybe have a bigger piece of property or a nicer home or or just a home they could afford. It could be political affinity and, and it could be basically ethnic background driven. Um, is this a place where the people who look like me live? Well, I'm going to move into that neighborhood. Uh, and this, this goes always. Uh, you know, some people move from the east side to the west side in order to be around people that look like them or think like them. And then these last two, I think, uh, are really interesting to me. The first of the last two is, where do you observe hope versus brokenness? Talk a, talk a bit about that one. Yeah, I think uh, depending on where you live, this can be really obvious and it can also be really hidden. Uh, so on 82nd, 
it's really, really apparent that there is a lot of brokenness when it comes to sexuality. The way that, that this particular section of Portland views other human beings and views sexuality is broken. And it needs God's justice and love to come in and fix it. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and when I speak about justice, I'm not talking about like locking up the bad guy to prevent more bad stuff from happening. That's a consequence of brokenness. But when I, when I talk about justice, I'm talking about the kind of justice Jesus brought to us. I'm talking about gospel justice, where Jesus doesn't just penalize bad people. Instead, he totally changes a person so that the evil that we want to do, the sin that we want to commit, the things that are broken us about us are transformed and we ourselves become transformed by his justice so that we don't want to sin. We don't want to hurt other people, but we, we live in a state of shalom or desire that anyway. Mm-hmm. And so that's, that's what I mean by, by justice um, when it comes to something like 82nd and the apparent brokenness. And you can see things of hope, uh, you know, cruising down 82nd, depending on the time of night. You can see, you know, church groups that are building a relationship with people that are in uh, the prostitution industry uh, through, like, you know, serving serving a meal and uh, building building relationships there. Um, same with uh, you know the West Side underneath the Burnside Bridge. You can see signs of hope every Thursday night when a community of church people gather to serve their neighbors underneath the Burnside Bridge. Um, but then you move into like my neighborhood. And it doesn't seem like there's a whole lot of brokenness. You know, there might be some like unmown grass or something, but <laughs> you know, it looks like by American standards to be a pretty pretty sweet place. But what you'll notice in my neighborhood is that nobody's out front, nobody's meeting each other. If you were just to hang out on the sidewalk by my house, you would see people pass each other and pretend not to notice. And there's, there's a relational brokenness that's happening there. It's a lot easier to hide, a lot easier to ignore. Mm. Um, where you might see signs of hope is strangers at the park uh, with their kids playing together, having a conversation. Um, you might see signs of hope in, um, in a church that is full and the doors are open and people that look like they don't belong uh, find their way in. Mm-hmm. Those are some of the things that I think you can you can look for in your own neighborhood. Yeah. All of these questions are valuable in and of themselves and that they help us understand the the setting and and even more importantly just the people that we live next to and do business next to and commune with. So the, so they're all the point. This last one especially, I think, is in some ways driving more toward the point. And the last question is, where does the church need to get involved? I mean, what what all this understanding is driving us to is, is hopefully where, how as individual Christians and then as communities of Christians together, we can actually engage people. 
find opportunity to just hear stories and listen and share life with, eventually share the, the good news of, of the gospel with people, and then even be tangible expressions of, of the, the very love of God in, in people's lives. And so final question is, where does the church need to get involved? How, how, do, you, how do you make that determination? How do you answer that question when you're in a particular neighborhood? This is like this is probably the Jesusy question here on this list uh, because it's a trap. It's it's like it's tricky, Jesus. <laughs> so look around you and look at the things that are broken um, that either you don't like. You know, I, I mean, we'll speak in like fairly black and white terms. Like you see people dealing drugs on the corner by the preschool, and you don't like it, and you think that. Um, you know, the church ought to be doing something about this, or at very least, like the law should be doing something about this. Or, you know, you see that there's a lot of old folks uh, in your neighborhood who don't have anyone visiting them except for maybe once or twice a week with Meals on Wheels or something. Or, you know, maybe there's some things that anger wells up in you because there's injustice and people being hurt and somebody's got to do something about this. Or maybe there's a passion where, you know, you think about your, um, your gay neighbors who are retiring and don't have kids of their own to take care of them. They don't have family of their own and, and they're just kind of alone and your heart breaks for them. And you, you're like, man, the, the church should be doing something about this and, and realize that you are the church, you're mm. part of the church, um, just as I am a part of the church and where God is birthing passion and empathy and a desire to step in in you. Um, this is something that you can be a part of as part of the church, and you can invite other members of your community, of your church community, uh, to be a part of with you. And where he is uh, exposing injustice, and you are filled with um, not only righteous anger over things gone wrong, but a desire to see um, to see the the light of God shown in in the or sh- how do you say that shining anyway yeah, um, that works and some some of those things like door of hope as a church an organized church is going to want to be a part of structurally and some of those things are going to be you and your community as the organic church uh, acting on behalf of of your your lord and king in your city mm-hmm. that's so good man well we should probably wrap up as we mentioned a couple of times, there's more resources for further study. We know that we have only scratched the surface of this, and you may be listening and be frustrated that we couldn't get to a certain subject or we've left a glaring hole. We, I, I don't doubt that that's the case, but hopefully this will be an ongoing conversation and this can at least be something that's beginning to spur some ideas. The end goal is this, uh, of all of this, like the whole conversation should point us to the fact that God has us in this particular place at this particular time on purpose. And that our our mission, wherever we find ourselves is the same, but we happen to find ourselves in Portland in these neighborhoods. And so the mission is here where we are to make disciples, to share the radical love, to proclaim the good news and to be the hands and feet of Jesus where uh, we are. 
And that requires us to kind of look up out of our Christian bubbles a bit, look up out of our family lives, look up out of our friendships, and to pull those relationships together to actually go and accomplish the Great Commission. And so we hope this is a step in that direction. Is that fair to say, Tom? Yes, it is. (laughs) You you catch me off guard every time. Yeah, that's totally right. Awesome. Well, this is probably a conversation to be continued, but for now, we bid you adieu. (laughs) You can tell it's late in the day. Yeah. (laughs) Goodbye, everyone.